Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we're on a constant journey with our listeners, walking and talking our way through history, and highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world one episode at a time. Come along for the journey. Leading by History. Welcome back to another episode of the Leading by History podcast and vodcast. I'm your host, Masayahu Israel, and it is a pleasure to be with you today for another episode in season three. Today, I have one of my intellectual homies here, Dr. Claudrina Harold, who is the chairperson of the history department for the University of Virginia. And I always want to, you know, just give her a shout out for the work that she does and the passion that she has for what she does. I I saw you. Well, first of all, welcome Dr. Harold to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's good to be in fellowship with you again. Yes, ma'am. And I'm watching you during COVID, right? Like, during like March, April, like in the middle of this thing, and you are in your (laughs) lecture hall, dolo with the camera going, and going in, teaching and giving the information. And I said, look at this lady, she is going in. You are serious about the business of teaching. And I remember when you came on with us, I believe it was um, season one, and you were talking about how you didn't just respect academics for just being academics, but that you had to be a teacher of students to actually put what it is that you do into work and into practice, or you know, you weren't getting the respect from you. And so you're still here, still in the classroom, still putting it down, but at the same time, still chugging out the information in the new book, When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music in the Soul and Hip Hop Era. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, really, really good text here. We want to talk a little bit about this research today. I was saying to you before we, we started recording that you never literally said to me that your work of passion was dealing with music, but I picked it up from just watching what you do and following what you do. How did you get impassioned with music, Black music, African-American music and sound? Yeah, so music is music is my sanctuary, and it's been my sanctuary since I was a kid. I grew up in a family where there was a deep love for music. Uh, I grew up in a family where one of my uncles actually was a professional musician, was a producer for uh, Atlantic Records and later Warner Brothers. I grew up in a family where my mom talked about, you know, seeing James Cleveland with the same type of passion she talked about the first time she saw James Brown. And so being a part of a community in which there was no distinction between gospel and R&B and soul, uh, it all was just black music. And so um, my mother was very supportive of 
you know, that passion, that love for Michael Jackson, that love for Run DMC, that love for Houdini. Uh, so she allowed me to go. She took me to Mike, when Michael Jackson came to Jacksonville, but also allowed me to go. I can remember um, going to the Fresh Fest in the Fresh 1980s Fest. and Fresh you know, seeing people like Run DMC and Houdini wow. and and um, of course, later Public Enemy. And so um, there was always just this approach to music as entertainment, as, as pleasure, as a center of knowledge where you can gain um, knowledge of self, whether that is you mm-hmm. know, Irvin Gaye and Aretha Franklin or KRS-One. And even if she didn't necessarily like some of the people that I was listening to, um, was always supportive of my approach to um, music. So I always say, you know, my, my love for music, my love for uh, African-American art and, and creativity that really emerged from home. And then there was a way in which all of that was intertwined with, with ideas. So, you know, we were library people, you know, we were public library people on the weekends, you know, and so um, I'm flipping through Jet, <laughs> flipping through Ebony. Mm. Um, so also reading about these musicians, reading about their art, reading about the debates of art, you know, has R&B lost its soul, you know, mm. um, has hip hop taken it too far? And so combined with the um, immersion in the music itself is also um, this in-depth um, engagement with the ideas about black music. And uh, so, you know, I get it from my mama, you know, I get it from, <laughs> you know, I get it from, you know, my people, you know, and my family, you know, and also um, my, you know, because of my uncle and his ups and downs. Um, it's always interesting to talk about my uncle, my uncle, David Crawford. He was the one of the first African-American DJs to actually play on a, a white radio station. And after he left, he stopped DJing. He got to Atlantic Records. And so he produced uh, that song, What a Man by Salt and Pepper, samples mm. actually, uh, his song that he wrote for Linda um, Linda Lydell. And uh, worked with people like Wilson Pickett. And then the disco mm. thing came. And, you know, he, he wrote Candy Staten's Young Hearts Run Free, Mighty Clouds of Joy. But what's interesting mm. is my uncle, you know, also the Downs, my uncle is buried in a pauper's grave in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. New York. And um, and so at the same time, the trajectory of his life also made me think about the business of music and not just music as art, but music as, as commerce. And, and so I was always, even as a, as, a, as a teenager, interested in that. And I think some of that has to do with his trajectory, not all of it, but you know, I was just a music fanatic. So you know how it is. You love mm-hmm. an artist, you want to know how they're doing on the charts, you know, when the next album is coming out. And so I think one of the reasons I probably didn't talk to you and say I'm researching on music, because I feel there's a part of me that was always doing that. I was always right. reading liner notes. I was always digging. I'm, you know, the biggest, the hardest thing about COVID right now is not being able to go to the um to the record store. You know, I'm right. I, I'm like, I, I, I enjoy that. It's like it's it's um and so in some ways, this is a labor of love, this book on gospel music, but it's just an extension of what I do. So like Sunday, you know, eBay had my money again, um, you know, because I was digging. I found, um, I actually found a record that he produced 
where he signed something. It says autograph. And so I just want to know what he put, you know. So mm. I'm always, I'm always kind of digging and digging into the music and trying to make sense of the connection between the music and history and politics. Mm. You know, I'm a former crate digger and uh, grew up in the hip hop scene um, and actually uh, am featured in a documentary called Hip Hop Legends of VA. Mm. And um, so, you know, I, I come out of the same city as Mad Skills or Skills, you know, Mr. Melody. You know, a lot of people back in my day, Lil Walters used to put the work in, you know, where I was. He was a, a friend of my uncle and um, Two Deaf Crew. And 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 so, you know, and, and of course, when it came to the gospel scene, I mean, the gospel quartets and all of that yeah. stuff. You know, when you're visiting my grandmother's folks and all of them out in the country and, and everyone used to love to go and see the gospel quartet and the, the blind boys. And as you said, <laughs> uh, Mighty Clouds of Joy, um, the names are escaping me now. What was the it was one group. It was a a, a, a a woman in her oh the Ingram Mega Ingram oh yeah and and yeah. the Ingramettes right it had a you know profound so, influence on D'Angelo there you go yeah. and it, of course and D'Angelo of course coming up in the assemblies of Yahweh and playing mm -hmm. the uh, the organ there and I know people who who were in that assembly when he was a, a kid first you know, getting into the music so much. I mean, Virginia in and of itself is the land of the greats. Uh, and you know that here in Richmond, Virginia, the Hippodrome was the location of many concerts. And you know that the Miles Davises of the world uh, would come here, you know, and even before them, you had the greats, the Bessie Smiths and, you know, all of these other folk who would come through Richmond to play in the Jackson Ward area, you know, which was considered the Harlem of the South by some, you know, just a great uh, musical history here. P Plunky and the oneness of Juju, you know, uh, just so, so much going on here in, in, uh, in Richmond, Virginia, in, in particular, uh, Bon Caribe and, uh, the, you know, just, just so many classical, uh, uh, groups, uh, just so much going on right here. Uh, Richmond Symphony, of course. So just growing up in the music, I just came up loving music. I, I'm older than you, but you know, my parents, I came up on Ike and Tina, Fats Domino. You know, I, I grew up listening to I'm Walking. Yes, indeed, I'm talking about you and me. Uh, Waiting till the midnight hour, you know. <laughs> so, but then at the same time, Sam Cooke, the gospel airs and, um, you know, James Cleveland and mm -hmm. Bishop Bonner, you know, like <laughs> all of these uh, mm -hmm. names of folk, uh, when you grow up in an African-American community, whether you are, my family's filled with black folk that are Jews and Rastas and Muslims and five percenters, but we all were going to grandmama's church Mm -hmm. to hear those quartets on Sunday evening, whether you wanted to or not. You could call yourself a Herald X if you wanted to, but you're coming to see mm -hmm. uh, Maggie Ingram and the Ingramettes come and sing this gospel. So 
just so much when you talk about music, just look at how the connections are there, right? It's that universal music, that universal language, that universal movement. You know, it's just so much to music. So in delving into your work, I saw some names here that I, I really, I got some questions for you. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna do a little digging. What would you say in your research was one of the first gospel songs, because you focus here on gospel music in the soul and hip hop eras, and I think that's significant. We're not going back to Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, you know, Negro spirituals, but we're talking about in the time of soul and hip hop. And there's a reason why you go there, because there's a point at which these worlds, I wouldn't say they collide, they intertwine and complement each other. What would you say was the first gospel song that you're aware of in your research to actually bridge the gap between gospel and soul that almost takes a secular approach to music and changes the chord and the dynamic of the music? What would, in your research, what did you come up with? What have you seen as one of those first songs? Yeah, so I think that's, I think it's hard because soul and gospel are so intertwined. So when you think about someone like Ray Charles, you know, I got a woman. Mm. It's like, you know, is a secular version of a gospel song. Come on. And, and so sometimes you will have these moments where you're listening to, you know, James Cleveland and you're like, wait a minute. Is that James Cleveland playing off of Ray Charles or is that Ray Charles playing off of James Cleveland? So it's 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 difficult to do that. I think a very iconic and important song in this story is "Say Edwin Hawkins' Oh Happy Day." Mm, um, that is, that is recorded in um, you know Oakland <laughs> in mm -hmm. um, the late 1960s. It blows up in you know really 1969. You can hear the influence of soul. You can hear the influence of really psychedelic soul in that California sound. Mm. Um, you can hear jazz. Um, you can hear all of those things. And uh, it's so influential that, you know, George Harrison of the Beatles hears that song. And that's, you know, you know, that drives, you know, you know, my sweet Lord. Um, and so mm -hmm. once again, I think it's evidence of this, this sort of connection. And so I don't think necessarily you can point just to, you know, one song, because I mean, you know, it, like I said, it's connected. You think about Sam Cooke, and the soul stirs, and you think about, you know, wonderful. My God is so wonderful. But then when he comes out as, quote, Dale Cook, when he crosses over, he makes lovable, which is really, you know, interchangeable with wonderful. And so those things are um, always working in, in sort of African-American music. And so I'm not really trying, you know, or Aretha Franklin, think about Amazing Grace. And when she sings Holy, Holy. You know, mm. she, I mean, think about what it means for her to sing a Marvin Gaye song, a mm. relatively new Marvin Gaye song. I mean, What's Going On comes out in 1971. Uh, she records Amazing Grace January 13th and 14th of 1972 to go into New Temple Baptist Church and sing Holy Holy mm. and not miss a beat and everybody's with her because I think there's also this understanding and there's that doesn't mean that there's not these debates about what is gospel or what isn't gospel. But I think what's important in this soul era is I think black artists of every genre are trying to grapple with how do we capture spirit? 
What is this spirit that is animating black music mm. that connects all of these genres together? Of course, Cannonball Adderley tells us we got it from the country preacher. So think about in this moment of the 60s and the 70s, John Coltrane, Albert Eiler, uh, Alice Coltrane, uh, Donnie Hathaway, you know, all of these folks, Aretha Franklin, um, are trying to to also capture, how do we capture spirit? Mm. You know, how do we capture that spirit that sustains us as a community that makes your, you know, your brothers and your sisters and your cousins go to your grandmother church? That same thing that you are describing is that same thing that we can understand if we turn on a black soul station and you may hear back that thing up and then the next song going to be Donnie McClurk and We Fall Down. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, I mean, I'm sorry. True facts. Yeah. In, in, what other, in what other universe does that happen? Correct. And you facts. know, when we watch the BET Awards, there's going to always be a gospel segment. And whether you like it or not, you're going to have to sit through it. That's right. Or when we exactly. think about these moments when artists are searching or going through something, you can think about someone like Kanye. You make a gospel album. So, it, you know, it's not to engage in a support or a critique, but we have to say, what does this genre mean um, to people? And people, and I think this is what's exciting about the soul and the hip hop eras. And what I'm trying to say is, yeah, there's this art form that we never lose contact with. There's this art form that we're continuing to support. There's this art form that supports improvisation and sonic innovation. Um, there this, there's this art form that's constantly growing and diversifying in this period between 1968 and 1994. Thinking about Richmond, it's this art form that is sustained by these churches, but also sustained by some place, a place like Barkey's. On Main Marcus, Street. Right, you right. he has been around <laughs> since 1958. Come so on. I'm also interested in telling the story of the centrality of Black businesses, Black right. record companies, Black record stores, and sustaining it, you know, in promoting concerts, you know. And so um, that's not to say that there's no, you know, white involvement or supporting gospel. That's not what I'm saying. But it is an art form where self-sufficiency and self-determination is so evident. You know, so it, it was it was a book. If you're talking about Richmond, like, yeah, you can't just um, you can't exclude the singers. And I would also add the harmonizing four. Come but on. It's also people like Barky, who, interestingly enough, you know, and I've interviewed him who made a decision when hip hop came along. You know, right. hey, Barky's what, like 89 now. He was like, you know. I don't know about that hip hop. So one of the interesting things about a lot of these gospel stores, they were once kind of stores that sold everything. And then kind of in the eighties, they just became gospel stores and they sold, you know, Bibles and, and choir robes. So this is a story about the sonic innovations and the theological tensions and the political assertions in gospel music. But mm. this is also the story about an art form that people maintain. This is a story about an art form where people are constantly trying to be innovative, to try to push, to, to spread the word, but also about an art form that um, people support. Mm. It, you know, it's about an art form that if you go to the Gospel Music Workshop of America, thousands of people still attend. Mm. An association that was created in 1968, 
in at the height of the black arts movement, at the height when so many black artists from Amiri Baraka to Sonia Sanchez were forming uh, collectives, you know, and while James Cleveland, who formed the Gospel Music Workshop of America, may not be a part of that story of black nationalism, he's a part of that moment. And mm. the institution that he creates and other support is still with us, mm. you know, and to me, it's about the music that's produced, but it's about the fans and the supporters who sustain this music with an understanding that this music and the spirit that it emits, it sustains us too as people. Mm -hmm. I don't mean it doesn't have its contradictions. That doesn't mean it doesn't have its problems. But that's the story that I want to tell. And I think when we write music history, and I think this is where audience becomes important. Um, I wrote that book for you. I wrote that book for people who <laughs> whose parents or grandparents dragged them to that to that quartet. I wrote that book for my eight, nine year old self who loved Commission and the Winans and, mm -hmm. and Shirley Caesar and James Cleveland, but who also loved reading about it. And when I got to college, there was a plethora of books on the sort of golden age of gospel music from the 1930s to the, say, you know, mid-1960s. Um, there were books that talked about gospel music's influence on blues or soul I wanted to write a book that was about gospel music itself in it from 1960 to the 1990s. It didn't, its importance has nothing to do or is not just limited to gospel music as an entry to understand, quote, something more important. Mm. Its importance lies in the fact that it just is. And that doesn't mean that there aren't some other things going on, but I was trying to understand how do we understand the commonality that in 2009, Michael Jackson's brothers rolled him out on that Staples Center singing, or you hearing Andre Crouch sing, soon and very soon, we're going to see the King. And Whitney Houston left here with Marvin Winan singing and Andre Crouch, let the church song, let the church say amen. Yeah. The, two, the one presence, common presence at those two funerals slash memorials was, was gospel music, was Andre Crouch. And so I was trying to understand, you know, what that music meant within the context of a larger culture without um, trying to, you know, explain it to people who may not have that respect, but to explain it to a community of witnesses who understand. Mm, mm, a community of witnesses who understand. Right. As we're recording uh, by video, we're going to take a brief break uh, yes. for the podcast and we'll be uh, back right afterwards. Sure. Hey, as a listener to the Leading by History podcast, we want to tell you about some exclusive opportunities available to you as a listener. If you go to patreon.com backslash leading by history today, you'll find that there are three tiers of support that will give you exclusive access to our program. We've got the official patron level, the all access tier, 
and the highest level, the VIP patron level of support. If you want to find out how you can have exclusive access and have impact on what we offer, go to patreon.com backslash leading by history today. As we spoke earlier, we talked about this community of witnesses that you mentioned that understand that the book was written for, for us who, who understand the centrality of gospel music to the African-American experience. You mentioned so much that I personally am, you know, in some way related to or have some interaction with. I mean, when you talked about Barkies, it's so funny. I know him well from having had one of the last black bookstores in the city of Richmond right on First Street, and he was the owner of the building. So, you know, uh, uh, lots of engagement there. And so, you know, you talk about D'Angelo, whose family members were associated with the Refuge Temple Assembly of Yahweh, um, that was right down the street from Barkey's and right down the street from, from my store, Crown Prince Marketplace, right there on First Street, and how that history, all of that is just around, it's around us and it pervades. The thing that we see from the time that we exit the ship of enslavement until today is the tune of honoring and respecting the creator and the creative source of our people through music. It was, it was a gospel song, what we would term as gospel, a spiritual tune that sustained us throughout enslavement, a spiritual song, a redemption song, as Bob Marley would say, that allowed us to, to give hidden messages in the music of swing low or steal away. Um, when you talk about gospel music in the age of soul and hip hop, we don't even think about sometimes how often gospel music influenced hip hop music. We can see the connection in soul, but we don't think about an entire genre of music today that is called CHH or Christian hip hop music, where you have these groups like the cross movement or gospel gangsters who uh, a, a member of the group who passed away most recently was a, a buddy of mine, Mr. Solo, who did music with Jeff Majors, you know, who is an African-American harpist, right? Man, can you imagine, you know, when I began to walk out my faith tradition as opposed to just having it be a part of my cultural norm, I was exiting my traditional listening to of hip hop music in what would be deemed the secular realm and was looking for something that would suffice to feed my spirit as opposed to the shoot 'em up bang bang that I was I was coming up on mm -hmm. and I find the group gospel gangsters mm -hmm. I had you know not been listening to much music except for strictly traditional 
you know, religious music. And I was I was feeling the desire of listening to something with that beat and rhythm that I came up on, but that was going to edify. And I see this group, Gospel Gangsters. What is this? Like, what in the world? And here they are on the cover, you know, in South Central Los Angeles, they have a gun on the cover and a Bible on the ground and they're throwing up signs. And I'm saying, what in the world is this creation? And here there's a song called Tears of a Black Man on their first album, Gang Affiliated, in which this group, who is a gospel group, talks about the issues of race, the problems of class, talking about food deserts and financial insecurity in the Black community and fe the feeling of otherness. And it's speaking to me like Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted. Mm -hmm. But it's a gospel album. This kind of stuff had never been seen before. I mean, it was just like, man. And so now to see people like Lecrae winning Grammys, right? And, you know, being involved in movies, right? And doing movie scores, but they're gospel artists or artists that are a part of that industry. It's amazing because here you see what you've pointed out in your book that we've never been able to escape from the central theme of gospel music. For those who may practice the Judaic heritage as myself, you have Joshua Nelson, who does kosher gospel. And in his music, he's, in, he's so inspired by Mahalia Jackson that if you close your eyes, you think this man is channeling Mahalia. It's the strangest thing for those who've never heard him. I mean, in, in the tenor of voice, in the, in the way in which he bellows these sounds, but yet he's changing the words to Hebrew words and performing in, in Jewish synagogues and Black Jewish synagogues around the nation. Gospel music is a powerful music. My question to you, as I get off of my, my Harlem uh, stepladder, what's the power of, the, of gospel? Why this art form that influences all the others, mm -hmm. where people can't get away, even if they're in the most secular of lifestyle, as we may deem it, non-religious as they may be, every album seems to have a gospel song on it somewhere. Every gangster rapper does one song for his mama that's rooted in sounds of blackness like Jada Kiss on his first album. What's going on here, Doc? What's um, going on here? It's the it's the search for redemption. Mm. It's um the gospel impulse, it's the coming of community. Um it's a song of liberation. Mm. It's a song of healing. You know, he healed my body and told me to run on. Mm. I mean, there's a there's a there's a way out. Mm. You know, it is a a message of uplift, it's a message of hope, not all the time. But there is resolution. Um, mm. There is there is joy on the other side. Mm. Peace on the other side. You know, there's peace. Be still. You mm. know, you think about James Cleveland saying, "Peace be still." In 1963, mm. when you have the four little girls and the march on right. Washington, and then the death of Mega Evers, mm -hmm. does that mean he went into the studio saying, "I'm thinking about those things"? But no, I wonder what people were 
thinking and feeling when he said, you know, master, the tempest is raging. Mm. But then peace, I'm talking about peace. That means that death and oppression Ooh. doesn't have the final word. Ooh. Lord, do it for me. Mm. You know, and then gospel also asks us certain questions in the midnight hour. Where is your faith? Mm. You know, when he sings that song, he says, you know, just two people having a conversation and a statement of the blues. You know, I'm sick. I'm in trouble. <laughs> I, you know, I got a habit that I can't I can't shake. And he mm. asked the question, where is your faith? Mm. You no, know, that is that is James Cone, Black Liberation Theology. Mm. When James Cone says, well, you know, what enables black people to pray when theologians say that prayer is useless? Mm. what enables black people to preach when no one will listen mm. come on you know and so you hear that in james you hear that in james cleveland mm. you hear that in you know andre Krause. soon and very soon we're going to see the king you know god is trying this 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 push towards redemption and i think it's a it's present in our music you know um shirley caesar you know, that 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 thing that you also just hear in her voice. But, you know, teach me, master, you know, Satan, we're going to tear your kingdom, kingdom down. down. Mm -hmm. That can be that can be a godly thing or that can be a manly thing. Mm -hmm. You better watch out, Satan. Mm -hmm. You got all this stuff, you know, going on, but we're going to mm -hmm. tear your kingdom down. You're not going to have the last word. A shout mm -hmm. John, mm -hmm. you know, um. God gave me, and so it's also a song of praise. When you think about shouting John, and she says, "You know, hold my mule." Hold my you mule. <laughs> God gave me all of this. Not one time have I been to the courthouse. Not one time have I been to the cemetery. But you don't want me to dance in your church. What she's on. providing in 1987, 1988 is also, I think, in some ways, a counter narrative to a kind of urban centered analysis that we get in hip hop. So she's mm. saying, "Okay, we got this narrative going on." But there's something else going on with black people living, you know, as John, as John P. Key might say, on the county line. Mm. So what we also see in gospel music is 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 a is a comp complex representations of blackness. Mm. You know, shouting John, who she's letting you know he owns his own land, but he's not like those, you know, sedity dignitaries. Correct. That that's what that's what we hear in gospel, you mm. know. Clark sisters, you know, 82. If we if we just keep on with the evolution of the art form, they have a song called I'm in Good Hands. Twinkie Clark says she has a line where she says, God's economics beats Reaganomics. Mm -hmm. So if you think about this, you know, this is the same moment that we get, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the message. I think one of the things I want to tell in this book is the critique of capitalism. Uh, the critique of racism, it's not just coming from hip-hop in this moment. Come on. It's also coming from gospel. You That's keep, right. We, we, stay, we stay in Detroit. You got the Winans in 1985 with Let My People Go, where they're critiquing apartheid, when most white Christians are conspicuously silent about it. Mm, come on. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not other stuff in that music that make you want to say, mm. but so throughout you know, the traditions in gospel. And I don't think it just, you know, sometimes us coming together and singing and praying and the energy 
and and the energy that we draw from each other, that is sometimes a liberating event in itself. Yes. Yes. And so I, I, I never want to be too didactic or too simplistic where the argument for gospel and its significance is trying to find the political song, though I think that's important. But I also think there's something about the music. There's something about the choir as a paradigm that 50 and 60 people are coming together to make this one sound. And there's a lead singer, but sometimes you don't even care. You just want to be like John in the number. Mm-hmm. You know, and all of those things, I think that that's what that's that's the sustaining thing. So when you look at somebody, a, a, a you know, maybe let's say the, one of the biggest pop stars in the world who he may be going through something and he decides to make a gospel album. To me, it's not about just saying, well, is this album good or is it not? No, what makes Kanye turn to James Cleveland? Mm-hmm. What makes him try to reproduce God is? Mm-hmm. What, you know, well, it's just, is it just about me? No, it's what is the, the quote, Walter Hawkins, what is this? What is that theme that's operating? And I think it's the themes of redemption. I think it's the themes of no oppression doesn't have the final word. It's the search for liberation. It's the search for community. It's the search and the desire for fellowship that we also see in other, um, you know, sort of African spiritual systems, um, you know, that, 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 that push for something else. And so I think even uh, for me, and one of the reasons I stopped in 94, because there is an alteration in terms of, I think my relationship to the sort of tradition, you know, Protestant Christianity. Um, But when I think about not listening to gospel as much, and then the people that I get into, whether it be jazz, whether it be a certain kind of hip hop I like, or his tribe called quest or his common, there's this search for transcendence, even, and I think that music or Michelle Indigacello that I think has something in common with that earlier search as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it. the last time we talked, I remember um, it was about the Charlottesville 2018 book. And it was, you know, I can remember the morning, um, the first, the morning of the first day of school, of class. And at that point, the university had made a stance on um, the white supremacists were still kind of promising a return. And, it, you know, they could still come on grounds. And I remember for the first time being a little nervous. And I did not want to demonstrate or reveal that nervousness to my students. So what do I do whenever I have an existential crisis? I pull out my iPod. <laughs> but I listened to gospel. I couldn't listen to certain things I couldn't. And there are probably other genres I could have listened to, um, but it's not, I probably wouldn't have played back that thing. You know, there's certain things right. I wouldn't have played, right? <laughs> right, um, during that moment, right. But you know, you play Be Grateful by the Walk, you know, by the Hawk. You know, there's certain things that you can play that may not even provide resolution, but it enables you to navigate rugged emotional terrain. Mm. You know? Say that, so, say that, say that. I mean, and, and and so as we're coming to the end of the show, I mean, man, we could go on about this for, for, for so long, but it provides for me insight into life actions, reflections, and, and ideals because, you know, 
there's a reason why in my faith tradition, I could easily attend a traditional synagogue, but I attend an African-American messianic synagogue, right? A congregation, because there is a, a connection, a community and something there that with that music and that soul, because that influence comes from being African-American that it just, it's, it's just so different than just a traditional setting with the cantor and just, you know, there is something about, you know, I tell you, when I, when I went to visit, I was doing my, I remember it was years back, I was doing my master's thesis on uh, Black Judaic theology of liberation at Liberty University. Imagine that. And they allowed me later to come back and, and present my research to the graduate symposium there. I went to Belleville, Virginia to visit what was originally known in 1896 as the Church of God Saints of Christ, now known as Temple Beth El, the oldest African-American synagogue in the United States, built in Virginia in the early 1900s, the movement starting in the 1890s in Lawrence, Kansas by William Saunders Crowdy. That congregation is known for its music and for its praising. And when you walk in, it's a beautiful congregation there in Belleville. It's huge. You see the Star of David there, you know, pronounced clearly. You walk into the sanctuary, you see uh, the place for the Torah, the Bema, you see uh, the chairs for the rabbinic leaders and all of that. But then those rabbis in there get to sing it. Mm-hmm. And you hear, take me back. Mm-hmm. Take me back, dear Lord, to the place where I first received you. And mm-hmm. you're in a, a an African-American Hebrew congregation, a Jewish synagogue, but the gospel music is pervading and it is just so phenomenal. And I remember my first visit was at a, a, a Passover and, oh, it was just, just, they're known for their singing. I mean, the choir, the, and everybody starts doing this little step, like the whole congregation is in, and they're doing this step and the men are wearing these tailed brown um, uh, uh, tuxedos Mm -hmm. that they've been wearing since the early 1900s. And you feel as if you've been taken back into time, but they're singing songs that you would have heard in the church and, and it boggles the minds of, you know, the Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jewish folk who mm-hmm. visit because they don't understand that in that slavery component, that African-American component that's mixed in. And so I just think about my experiences in life, the things I've seen. And as you said, that gospel music provides a means of navigating rugged, uh, emotional terrain, emotional terrain. But I think we, you know, what I would say is, I think we have to be specific. It's very touching to me that you mentioned Take Me Back, which Andre Crouch recorded in 1974. So what I think is happening is too, there was something about his music too, Andre Crouch. Yes. That he created this music that crossed over in terms of white and black, secular and sacred, but also crossed over in terms of denomination. Yes. I think there was something about his form that Mm -hmm. enabled it it can translate into that space that you're describing. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, this book and the artists that I decided to focus on, I think are those artists 
who had respect for the form could stretch the form out, <laughs> could sometimes do a lot of different things with the form and it still contains spirit. And I think that's one of the debates in gospel music then and now is what's the relationship to, and you're hitting it on it between form and spirit. And are there certain forms? Are there certain styles that once you begin to embrace the spirit kind of gets emptied? And so to me, your example is so powerful. And that's what makes Andre Crouch to me truly unique in certain ways is that his form and his innovation it allowed the spirit to maintain itself. Mm -hmm. And so once again, this book is about debates about that form developing. Sometimes people were not comfortable with the incorporation of different, you know, soul and funk and hip hop elements. And were concerned that this traditional thing that you're talking about that came from our ancestors would be diluted or corrupted. Mm -hmm. And so it's also this tension between how much do you innovate? How right. much do you embrace innovation? And what traditions do you want to keep? Mm. And I think that is so symbolic of so many of the questions that, you know, what would we lose if we lost Barkies? You mm. know, what happens when certain spaces aren't there anymore? So how do you maintain culture? protect culture, but also allow culture to grow. Mm, mm. And I, I think that's something that you, there's a struggle in gospel. It's a struggle in R&B. So sometimes we forget about the fact that some of the R&B artists we loved in the 80s, there were people from, you know, who listened to R to soul in the 60s and the 70s who would say, oh, they're not soulful enough. Exactly. And you think about some of the jazz debates. And so Gospel has a lot of parallels with other genres and with larger questions or connected to larger questions about African-American culture. You know, I was going to ask you for a, a charge to our community of listeners, but I think you just gave it. I think I think in what you just said is is thinking about um, the way in which gospel is used and 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 traditions are maintained and innovation how do we engage that in order to honor this music form that got us through hundreds of years of oppression and servitude? And I think that as long as what we do aligns with the respect of that, even when it's innovated upon, if it's understood, I think that can be brought forth through the music. I tell you, there's so much more we could talk about and we could be here for hours, I mean, hitting on some of this music because I've 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 got a a a big uh, uh, listening. You know, my my Apple Music page is is ridiculous. Um, we'll have to continue this, <laughs> hopefully, Definitely. at another time. But I think if there's one word that sums up everything we've said today, it would be hallelujah. <laughs> so so. <laughs> I thank you. Anyhow. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Anyhow, I thank you, uh, Dr. Harold, for being with us today and taking time out of your schedule to, to come back to the Leading by History family. I have thoroughly enjoyed, I'm hoping that uh, my air purifier in the background and, 
and not having hooked up mics hasn't uh, taken away from the the quality of of the of the presentation. But I tell you, if people just listen to the words and the conversation and what was brought out, I believe that they will have an opportunity to uh, create extensions and conversation and study that will go long beyond and far beyond this this uh, podcast. Thank you so much for being with us right. today. Thanks for having me. From Leading by History, we say to you, peace. Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We enjoyed being with you today and we look forward to being with you again soon. Until then, keep a leveled head and always investigate the sources. Peace.